This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. The richest, most powerful place on earth. A fiction podcast. Tuman Bay. On an epic scale. Power is everything. Power gives everything. We have to get away from this place. Tuman Bay is our destiny. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay. Be sharp and die for Tuman Listen to all episodes of Tomb and Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And it is time for another Maritime Disaster installment, which uh, I feel slightly odd saying that makes listeners happy, but many people really love Maritime Disaster stories, so... It's a big draw for some reason. It is. It's fascinating. People are drawn to the sea and to seagoing vessels, and, you know, there's a certain romance to all of that, and... These are always fascinating because, you know, usually the wreckage sinks and there's an ongoing mystery that kind of draws people in, I think. This one, not so much mystery, but a little bit. Uh, we'll get to that towards the end. And this particular disaster that we're talking about today is unique in a number of ways. One is that it took place on a river rather than out at open sea. Uh, another is that it was likely caused by corruption more than anything else. Uh, the really sad part of it was that it caused the death of many, many soldiers, even though it was not part of a battle. Uh, and it actually, even though it was horrific, really got lost in the shuffle of a very busy news cycle and a certain degree of numbness that had taken place because the public had at this point developed overexposure to stories of death and high numbers of uh, deceased. And so this really wasn't talked about very much at all, even though it ranks as the worst maritime disaster in U.S. history. And so to give you context for why this this horrific event may have gotten lost in the shuffle in terms of public knowledge, uh, it took place in April of 1865, which was an incredibly important month in U.S. history. On the 9th of April, General Robert E. Lee surrendered at Appomattox Courthouse. And on April 14th, President Abraham Lincoln was assassinated as he watched a staging of Our American Cousin at Ford's Theater. On April 26th, John Wilkes Booth, who uh, had assassinated the president, was captured and killed. So it, in that context, is maybe not so surprising that a steamboat sinking on April 27th, which is the day after all of the John Wilkes Booth stuff happened, uh, didn't make headline news. But it was nonetheless a huge tragedy. The Sultana was built at the John Lithaberry Shipyard in Cincinnati, Ohio. It's a side-wheel steamboat, and it was about 260 feet long and 42 feet wide. The ship was legally cleared to carry up to 376 passengers with a crew of 85. 
And the Sultana was built as a really impressive ship for the time. Uh, her safety equipment in particular was cutting edge, including a full complement of the latest and greatest technology available at the time. The boilers had safety gauges. Uh, there were multiple pumps to fight fire. And there were more than 300 feet of fire hose on board, as well as dedicated buckets and axes for firefighting. On February 3rd, 1863, the Sultana was launched from Cincinnati, Ohio, to begin her career along the lower Mississippi. She primarily ran from St. Louis to New Orleans and back. And while the Sultana was intended to be used in the cotton trade, uh, for the years from 1863 to 1865, the U.S. War Department often commissioned the steamer as a cargo and troop transport uh, for Civil War needs. As the war came to an end, many Union soldiers who had been prisoners of war were released. Soldiers coming from prison camps at Cahaba in Alabama and Andersonville in Georgia were sent to Vicksburg, Mississippi, to await transport to go north. And uh, because the government was flooded with all of these soldiers that were trying to get back home as the war was wrapping up, uh, the government actually offered steamships $5 a head if they would carry troops back home. And for most of them, they went up to Cairo, Illinois, and then routed to wherever their personal home was from there. And uh, for a comparison, that amount, $5 per head, is estimated, uh, in one estimate I saw, at around $65 per person today. On April 21st, 1865, the Sultana departed from New Orleans. Captain James Cass Mason was at the helm, and the ship carried more than 100 passengers and a cargo of livestock. So the Sultana made a stop at Vicksburg, Mississippi, to take on recently released Union POWs and to perform repairs. And this stop was basically riddled with bad decisions that would seal the fate of the Sultana and its passengers. The ship's engineers had identified a problem with one of its boilers. But to replace the boiler was going to take several days. And those were days during which all these Union soldiers, which were so lucrative to have on board, would instead go home on other vessels. So instead of losing potential uh, cash, the decision was made that they would patch the boiler quickly, which would only take about a day, instead of installing a whole new replacement boiler. Then there was the matter of loading all the troops on board. At $5 a man, it was really lucrative to take as many POWs as possible, and kickbacks of as much as a dollar and 15 cents a person were being paid to military officers in charge of troop loading. This was so they would sort of look the other way while the boats were loaded way beyond capacity. And when it comes to ignoring capacity limits, this particular uh, voyage comes with some downright shocking numbers. Like, I am not kidding. Brace yourselves. So we talked about earlier how the Sultana was legally um, certified to carry a little less than uh, 400 people, fewer than 400 people, more than 2,000, yes, 2,000 soldiers were loaded on board while the captain and army officials lined their pockets with all of this money. Uh, so in the end, the ship was at more than six times normal capacity. Many of the men could barely find a place to stand, let alone sit or lie down. The top deck, which was known as the hurricane deck, as well as the second deck and the bottom main deck, were all completely packed with men who crushed onto the ship. They were all eager to get home after the time they had spent in battle and some of them in prison camps. Yeah, at this point, many people uh, will ask, you'll see sometimes in the in the literature, and it sometimes comes up of like, why would all of these men agree to get on this ship if it's clearly so dangerous and horrible? 
Uh, they were POWs. They just wanted to get home and end the horrible things that they had been through. And so there were so many of them that the hurricane deck began to sag really badly from the weight of all of the men. Uh, and it actually had to be buttressed with stanchions to prevent a cave-in. After assuring one of the army officers that the ship had carried similar loads before, Captain Mason left Vicksburg at 9 p.m. on April 24th. But it had one more stop to make before it moved on toward Cairo, Illinois. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited. And uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. <laughs> yeah, you sounded so calm. And it's not a calm situation at all. Uh, Our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So on April 26th, the Sultana docked at Memphis to pick up coal for the rest of its journey. And some accounts uh, kind of hint that there may have been additional repairs to the damaged boiler, like they may have put another metal plate over problematic areas. Uh, but just the same, they loaded with coal. They may or may not have done those repairs. And sometime between midnight and 1 a.m. on the 27th, the Sultana left port at Memphis and continued north. It did not get very far. Uh, in addition to the heavy load that the Sultana carried, the journey was slowed by rushing downstream waters of the Mississippi because melting snow had actually led to the river flooding in certain areas. Around 2 a.m., the boiler that had been repaired instead of being replaced gave out and exploded. And shortly afterward, two of the remaining three boilers also blew. So a really aggressive fire broke out. Within minutes of the explosions, the two smokestacks were completely compromised and they fell onto the hurricane deck. Many men were killed immediately in the collapse and those that survived uh, jumped from the ship in panic. 
There have been some interesting write-ups that I've seen in my research that uh, kind of suggest that people should have tried to fight the fire rather than jumping. But one, it's hard to know if that would have done any good because this is pretty catastrophic at that point. And two, uh, you have to take into consideration the fact that the people that were not crushed by the smokestacks or catapulted from the vessel in the explosion were often suffering from severe burns and scalding from the steam and fire. Well, on on top of the whole question of whether they should have fought the fire, there's the fact where if people are crushed onto the deck so hard that they can't even move, how could they reasonably try to fight a fire? Right. Well, um, most of the people are alluding to the people that were not crushed that jumped. Oh, I see. I can't say that I would behave any differently in a situation like that. I mean, I think your survival instinct just kicks in and you're like, I got to get out of here. This is not a safe place. Right. So the fire spread really rapidly toward the stern, which forced more people to jump overboard. And the river was quickly filled with bodies and with jumpers who were barely clinging to life. A lot of these men had just been released from prison camp, and so they were incredibly weak to begin with. Some of them were sick. They were swimming in the current and trying to tread water and trying to hang on to debris just to float. And all of these things quickly depleted their energy. This was also a time when people didn't generally just learn how to swim when they were children. So a lot of people in the water were, you know, in peril just for not knowing how to keep themselves afloat. Yeah, it's not like today when you grow up and you go to the pool in the summer and you take swimming lessons. Like, it was not uncommon for people to have no idea how to swim at this point. Uh, and in addition to the, these people that were in the water being physically taxed by the exertion, the water was extremely cold. We mentioned earlier that, you know, a lot of the, the heavy water was due to the fact that snow was melting, snow and ice was melting and water was coming downstream. And that water was super cold. So hypothermia claimed many lives as well. Some survivors clung to some of the livestock animals that had been killed in the blast. Uh, there's one survival story that involves a man who uh, allegedly floated for 10 miles down the Mississippi on a deceased mule. Official reports list 1,547 deaths, although most historians estimate now that it's closer to 1,800 men who were killed. We don't know the exact number of lives claimed by the tragedy because so many men were herded onto the ship at Vicksburg. In the end, the explosion of the Sultana's boilers and the ensuing panic killed close to the same number of Union troops as were lost at the Battle of Shiloh. The remnants of the Sultana drifted downriver before sinking to the bottom of the Mississippi River near Memphis. Uh, Bodies washed up for days and some even as late as a month later along the banks of the Mississippi. News of the tragedy first broke when a young man drifted onto the banks of the river in Memphis and told sentries what had happened. This information was quickly relayed and officials scrambled to try to mount a rescue effort. The SS Bostonia II was the first rescue vessel on the scene, and it arrived really quite quickly. So remember, this happened at 2 a.m. The Bostonia arrived there at 3 a.m. The SS Arkansas, the SS Jerry Lind, the SS Essex, and the Navy gunboat USS Tyler also joined in the rescue effort. The USS Tyler was manned uh, almost exclusively by volunteer crew that had to be mobilized really rapidly from Memphis because the regular crew that would normally uh, man the ship had already been discharged. Again, we're coming to the end of the war and everybody's kind of shuffling home. More than a week after the tragedy on May 4th, the Tiffin, Ohio paper reported the incident as follows. The scene following the explosion was terrible and heartrending in the extreme. 
Hundreds of people were blown into the air and descending into the water. Some dead, some with broken limbs, some scalded, were borne under by the restless current of the great river never to rise again. The survivors represent the screams as agonizing beyond precedent. Some clung to frail pieces of the wreck as drowning men cling to straws and sustained themselves for a few moments, but finally became exhausted and sunk. Only the best of swimmers, aided by fragments of the wreck, were enabled to reach the woods and take refuge, until rescued by boats sent from the landing to their assistance. There were about 15 women and children aboard, and as near as can be ascertained, not more than two or three had been found at the hour when this account was written. So, Tracy, before we talk a little bit about the investigation that followed this tragedy, do you want to just take a quick word from our sponsor? I just realized that the first letter of every line of this review (laughs) spells help me. (laughs) It seems like everyone's a critic these days, blessing the world with our slightest opinions, all on our own mini platforms. I'm Scott Janowitz. And I'm Greg Conley. We're the hosts of Citizen Critic, a podcast where we critique the critics and review the reviews of everything from movies, music, and television to toasters, toiletries, and paint colors. We'll hear from the experts... Here's my review. Coldness and heartlessness are undermining today's suspense movies. The end. Don't go see it. Zero stars. As well as from all the citizen critics out there. So we loved our experience here because I read all the reviews beforehand and did not stay, eat dinner, or officially tour here. (laughs) Five stars. (laughs) Listen to Citizen Critic on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So General C. Washburn, who was a commanding officer at Memphis, opened an investigation into the Sultana's explosion and sinking almost immediately after being informed of what had taken place. Special Order 109, which was issued by Washburn, established a military commission to investigate the incident, and they moved really quickly. They did not drag their feet. Uh, they began taking testimony at 11.30 a.m. on April 27th, so just nine and a half hours after this had all happened. Several days later, Secretary of War Edwin M. Stanton issued Special Order 195 to start a separate investigation. And there was a rumor that a Confederate bomb had been aboard the ship. But in the end, uh, these military investigations determined that the mismanagement of the boilers and the overcrowding of the ship were the, the real causes. Even so, the alternate possibility that sabotage was involved continues to be examined and debated due to a, quote, secret revealed in 1888. How this information came to light is a little nebulous, as it's reported in two different ways. In one, Confederate messenger Robert Loudon claimed on his deathbed that he had in fact sunk the Sultana with a coal torpedo. Other accounts say that an acquaintance of his revealed the information shortly after he died. Yeah, and Loudon is also often referenced as a uh, basically a, a spy for the Confederates. Uh, and uh, I would say that more accounts seem to document that his friend, William Streeter, was actually the one that revealed this information. But just so you understand how this could have worked, uh, a coal torpedo was basically a metal casing that would be filled with gunpowder, and then it would be rolled in wax and coal dust, so it could basically masquerade as a lump of coal and be tossed into a regular coal bin and nobody would notice it. Uh, the incendiary would then be shoveled into a boiler with the rest of the coal in the course of regular travel for a steamship, and this would 
cause the boiler to explode once it was heated, of course. Naturally, there's no definitive evidence on this alternate version, so it's really unlikely we'll ever know for certain whether sabotage was involved. And as for the follow-up to the official investigation, the ship's captain was killed in the incident, and the only charges that were filed were against a federal army officer, Captain Frederick Speed, and he had basically been one of the people that took the dollar fifteen in in kickbacks uh, to allow the overloading of troops onto the Sultana at Vicksburg. On January 9, 1866, his court-martial began in Vicksburg. And in the January 31st, 1866 edition of the Daily Empire, which was a newspaper out of Dayton, Ohio, an article ran entitled Heavy Charge, 1,110 Murders. And this uh, article detailed Captain Speed's court-martial trial. Uh, the article states, quote, It is alleged that in April last, he chartered the steamer Sultana for private speculative purposes, placing 1,886 paroled prisoners on board, and thus did overload the said steamer Sultana, whose legal carrying capacity was 376 passengers. The article goes on to describe the accident. Quote, about seven miles above Memphis, Tennessee, was destroyed by an explosion of her boiler or boilers and by fire. And thereupon a large number, to wit, 1,110 or thereabouts, of the paroled prisoners on board, whose names are unknown, lost their lives by drowning, scalding, and burning. And that the 1,110 paroled prisoners would not have so lost their lives, but for the misconduct of the said Captain Speed and the overloading said steamer Sultana. And on June 9th of 1866, so this was more than a year after the tragedy took place, Captain Speed was indeed found guilty of neglect, and he was dismissed from the army. However, aside from being disgraced and being uh, booted from the service, there wasn't a whole lot in the way of punishment. Uh, when Brigadier General Joseph Holt, who was Judge Advocate General of the U.S. Army, uh, when he received the case file and the court-martial findings, he actually dismissed the charges against Speed, and the case was closed on September 1st of 1866. And there's some speculation that really it was a case where uh, he came to understand that this was not an uncommon thing, that many other officers did similar things and let ships be overloaded, and he didn't want this one man to become sort of the the example to be made of uh, of the situation, even though clearly there was a lot of horrible uh, aftermath of his poor decision making. While the incident was reported in the Ohio newspapers because of the large number of Ohio residents on board uh, and in the St. Louis papers because that was the Sultana's home port. Much of the rest of the country was so engaged with the news surrounding President Lincoln's assassination and the end of the war that the event was barely noted. In a lot of papers, it was several pages in before the incident was even mentioned. And the Mississippi River has actually shifted course throughout the years, as most people know. Uh, if you don't know, it is actually about two miles east now of where it ran by Memphis in 1865. So it's really shifted quite a bit. And in 1982, an archaeological expedition located what is believed to be deck planks and timbers from the Sultana, uh, and these artifacts were actually found under a soybean field on the Arkansas side of the river. So where it would have sunk, but then the river has since shifted over quite a bit. While the Titanic disaster was also incredibly tragic, unlike the Sultana, it has a cemented place in history and its story is really widely known. 
But for comparison, the Sultana was less than half the size of the Titanic, and it lost between 1,700 and 1,800 passengers, compared to the Titanic's 1,517 deceased. Both of these are, of course, terrible, but it's sad that the Sultana tragedy was eclipsed by other news at the time and largely forgotten. Yeah, it really did kind of not get uh, a fair shake in terms of being reported. There are many theories about why that go beyond the sort of um, heavy news cycle that was going on. Some people have kind of hinted that perhaps because the Titanic had a lot of rich and famous people on it, that was a more sensational story to report. And that kind of seeded it as uh, a historical marker, whereas with this, it was unfortunate and it was a lot of Union troops, but we didn't even know many of their names Uh it's really sad, and I, I am very saddened that it it kind of gets left out of the the story a lot of the time. Uh, yeah, so that uh, on peppier news, I have some listener mail. Hooray! I have what is probably my favorite listener mail of all time, and I mean no disrespect to any of our other listener mails because we get so many seriously awesome ones, but this one just hits all my sweet spots. Uh, this is from our listener Hannah. And she says, hey, ladies, I'm a longtime listener and I love, love, love the podcast. I've never written in before, but after recently listening to the episode on Rose Bertin, I felt inspired to. Okay, just get ready, as my personal aside, for your jealousy meter to fly off the charts. So Hannah says, I live in Paris and I moved here to study art history. I wrote my thesis on Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun's portraits of Marie Antoinette and how these portraits, along with Rose Bertin's glorious over-the-top gown she created for the queen, often depicted in these portraits, eventually led to Marie Antoinette's downfall during the revolution. By portraying herself as essentially the queen of fashion rather than the queen of France, Marie Antoinette created many enemies and this marred the French people's impression of their queen. Just after handing in my thesis, my friends and I discovered that the Palace of Versailles had started holding an annual masquerade ball. Oh my gosh, I'm so jealous. I can't even deal with it. (laughs) This event started at sunset, and like the court of Louis XIV, it lasted until sunrise the next day. Period costumes from the 17th and 18th century and masks were required. The evening started in the gardens, where there was Baroque music playing. There were bubble machines spewing enormous bubbles as far as you could see. This probably didn't happen in Louis' time. And an elaborate fireworks show that lasted nearly an hour. After this, we were escorted into Louis XIV's private gardens that are normally closed to the public. At this point, it was only people in period costumes, and there were 5,000 participants total. It was absolutely incredible. I won't go into all the details because it's simply too much to write down, but in one area of the party, there was a full-string orchestra playing only Michael Jackson music. There were topless women in fountains reading poetry out loud and being fanned by very muscular men wearing very little clothing. There was a cage full of tigers. There was a wall made of rain. Circus Soleil performers danced every 30 minutes on stages set up all around the garden. And at 3 a.m., they released bald eagles into the crowd. It was absolutely outrageous and one of the best nights of my life. The the whole shindig ended at sunrise with breakfast served for 5,000 in the orange groves just outside the gardens. The costumes were incredible, and I felt so great wearing a dress similar to those I had just spent months and months researching. I even saw a woman with a birdcage built into her wig with a live bird in it. Uh, And she she sent us pictures of this party, and they are just incroyable. They are beyond belief. They're so spectacular. I am so envious. I feel bad for the animals involved because I have to say that anytime we talk about animals. But, oh my goodness, what a party. Like, who wouldn't want to go to that? Uh, it's spectacular. Hannah, like I said, that is one of my absolute favorite emails of all time because 
just hits all of my my yummy uh, fangirl rabies spots. If you would like to email us, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. In case you don't listen closely every week, that is a little bit of a change. Uh, we're also at facebook.com slash historyclassstuff. You can connect with us on Twitter at mistinhistory, at mistinhistory.tumblr.com, and on pinterest.com slash mistinhistory. You can also visit us, check out archived episodes, and check out the n- newest stuff we have going on, as well as our blog posts at mistinhistory.com. And if you would like to research a little bit more of uh, the story we talked about today, you can go to our parent website, How Stuff works.com and type in the word sultana in the search box and one of the articles you will get is taken by the sea 11 real life shipwrecks and the sultana is mentioned in that article if you would like to learn about that or almost anything else you can think of you can do that at our parent website and as i said that's howstuffworks.com for more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com We are going to Italy. After the success of last year's trip to Paris, we are planning another similar trip, still with defined destinations, this time to Rome and Florence. Yeah, we are going to spend a week exploring some amazing things. We're going to have city tours of both Rome and Florence. We're going to see the Roman Colosseum, the Vatican Museum, and the Sistine Chapel, St. Peter's Basilica, Vatican City. This is just a tiny fraction of all the stuff we're going to get to do. Yeah, it's May 14th to 21st, 2020. And to get more information, go to defineddestinations.com and scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric here to let you know that my podcast, Next Question with me, Katie Couric, is back for its second season. I'll be diving into some big issues like this country's devastating maternal mortality rate, the rise of astrology, and a little thing called the presidential election. Listen to Next Question. It comes out every Thursday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows.